KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, September 17th, Understanding Critical Race Theory. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The latest data from San Diego County shows that while the current surge of COVID-19 cases appears to have slowed over the past two weeks, three times as many people died from COVID-19 last week compared to the week before. Dr. Mark Sawyer is an infectious disease specialist at Rady Children's Hospital. I'm hopeful that we're over the, the immediate problem, but you know we will have another surge unless we get a higher percentage of our population immunized. Among the most recent deaths, 80% were unvaccinated and nearly all had underlying health conditions. The San Diego Association of Governments, or SANDAG, is out with their mid-year report on crime. The agency compiles statistics from all eight law enforcement agencies in San Diego County. The report says murder is down in the first six months of this year compared to last year, but up from the same period in 2019. SANDAG's Director of Program Research and Management, Cynthia Burke, says aggravated assault is up. And those were up 20% from 2021 to 2020. But even more telling is that the percent that involved a firearm was up 55%. Property crime was also up from last year, but lower than in 2019. San Diego Comic-Con says badges will go on sale a week from Saturday for its event over Thanksgiving weekend. Convention goers will be required to show proof of COVID-19 vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test to get in. Online ticket sales will start 11 a.m. on September 25th. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's called critical race theory. It's something studied in law school as an academic framework that examines the impact of systemic racism on institutions and laws. But somehow it's now front and center in the ongoing culture war over what our children are learning in K-12 schools. KPBS's Jade Hindman explores what students are actually learning in school and how critical race theory is being misunderstood. 
Schools are back in session and tensions continue to boil over at school board meetings when critical race theory is mentioned. We do not want our children to be taught that America is systemically racist. The Fuhrer is being fed by social conservatives and right-leaning media who say it's replacing the traditional teaching of history and social studies in K-12 through schools. But that's not what's happening. In fact, if you're taking a class on critical race theory, you're probably in law school. Kiara Bridges is a UC Berkeley law professor and the author of a book called Critical Race Theory, a primer. No kindergartner uh, that I know is, is, is familiar with the Constitution. In fact, no 12th grader that I know um, has a baseline level of knowledge in order to engage with critical race theory. So critical race theory is not being taught in K-12 schools. So if critical race theory isn't being taught in K-12 schools, what is the controversy? Well, as many schools incorporate a better understanding of the ongoing impacts of racism and bigotry in their curriculums, conservative activists are responding by pushing for sweeping bans to suppress education about race and American history. Any talk about race that's, that is less than um, celebratory, that sort of says we triumphed, you know, we, we abolished slavery um, and then we passed the Civil Rights Act and, and we triumphed over our, our, you know, tragic racial history. Any talk that challenges that narrative that suggests that we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to racial inequality, that's critical race theory, according to these conservative activists. And that's what they're trying to keep out of um, K-12 schools. Let's look at the Ramoni Unified School District. The board there recently banned what they called 10 concepts about race from being taught in the classroom. As reported by the San Diego Union Tribune, the school board president said the goal is to make sure lessons focus on American exceptionalism. The goal of banning critical race theory or the goal of banning ethnic studies is indeed to maintain this idea of a white, masculine, Christian American exceptionalism. And that's precisely what is so dangerous about these bans. Sarah Clark Kaplan is a professor of ethnic studies and executive director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. She says Ramona Unified's ban and those like it across the country are actually seeking to remove ethnic studies from the classroom to maintain the myth of American exceptionalism. I think we can think of American exceptionalism as justifying, you know, Andrew Jackson's crusade against indigenous people as originating the Trail of Tears, as suggesting that Africans who were kidnapped and enslaved were in fact being saved from their dark life in Africa. All of these deeply oppressive systems have their root in American exceptionalism. Scholars argue that ethnic studies curriculums help correct the myth of American exceptionalism by highlighting the untold struggles and contributions of people who've been historically marginalized. Once we can diagnose a situation and we can understand that we have a role to play in it, then we are then obligated to think about how to change the parts of it that we don't like. That's what ethnic studies does. How do you understand history, sociology, cultural production, and how do you understand how we can change it? And to that point, Bridges says it's time to move the conversation beyond erroneous terms and the manufactured conflict over critical race theory. Do you want our kids to learn everything about this country or do you want them to learn a myth about this country? I think that most sober thinkers would say, let's teach them everything because that's what, that's the only weapon we have against repeating the mistakes of our past. 
And that reporting from KPBS's Jade Hindman. As the nation celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month, one local community college is promoting a special program to support Latino students in transferring into a four-year university. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has the story. The Brosmont College program is called Puente, the Spanish word for bridge. Puente's students are Latino and often the first in their family to go to college. They receive one-on-one counseling, mentoring, and classes in English proficiency. The goal is to get them to graduation. Veracruz Sanchez is a Puente professor and graduate of the program. And we need to tell our students that, yes, they can go to school, yes, they can go to college, and yes, they can, more importantly, graduate. I don't think being a Latino is a disadvantage. I think it's the thing that makes us strong. Professor Sanchez is also an author of three Chicano-themed books. And that was KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. There's a weekend-long event going on in Vista that provides resources for veterans. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne has more. Green Oak Ranch in Vista is a place of healing for U.S. veterans this weekend. For the fifth year, North County Veterans Stand Down brings resources for veterans to one place. Kelly Luisi with Homeless Veterans of San Diego says this year the event is needed more than ever. We're coming off such a difficult year with COVID and the, um, the eviction moratorium that we're seeing more and more homeless and younger, um, younger veterans and more and more families. The event is open to all veterans, their families and their pets until Sunday at noon. And that was KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Coming up, a Lucha Libre League is coming to San Diego this weekend, hoping to branch out to a new generation of fans of Mexican wrestling. We'll have that story next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. If you're looking for the high-flying theatrics and over-the-top flair of Lucha Libre or Mexican wrestling, you don't have to go south of the border to see it in person. In fact, you only have to go as far as Logan Heights, where Mujeres Brewing is exposing a new generation of fans to the traditional spectacle. It's happening tomorrow at 6.30. Take a listen. (laughs) 
San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania covered the story. She spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. So tell us a little bit about Lucha Libre and its popularity here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, Lucha Libre is huge. I mean, many of us who are Latinos, we instantly feel a sense of, you know, recognizing it whenever we see it, right? Luchadores wear these really colorful masks and uh, sometimes these really interesting costumes. And they have these really elaborate kind of performances in the ring, right? It's it's in a way entertainment. It can be a little theatrical. You have like the good guy and the bad guy. But yeah, they, they have like really amazing tricks that they do. And it, it's a lot, it's a lot of freestyle wrestling, but, but it can be really awesome and fun to watch. And where are these matches being held? Yeah, so right now, um, the organization that is um, really introducing them into the neighborhood of Logan Heights and hopefully expanding to other areas of San Diego is U.S. Baja Stars. And right now, they're taking place in Logan Heights at Mujeres Brew House. Before that, they were in Otay Mesa. Uh, they wanted to be closer to the border, but because of COVID, they haven't really been able to, you know, come up with some sort of venue that can accommodate them. So now they're doing them outdoors at, at this brewery. Is this an expensive event to go to? No, absolutely not. So that's a big part of their mission. So these events can can range from like thirty to a thousand dollars, especially uh, when you're talking about like WWE events. But this organization has really made it a point to make these wrestling matches accessible for people who maybe you know normally wouldn't have enough money to pay for something like this. Uh, so they're about twenty five dollars for adults, and I believe it's ten dollars for children. Tell us a little bit about the wrestlers themselves. I mean, how do they get drawn into wrestling? What's the allure of being a luchador? Yeah, so um, I spoke to a couple that day, one of their most recent matches, and and two guys are really interesting. I actually highlighted them in my story. Um, of course, there's a sense of mystery there because they, they don't use their actual names and they never take off their masks in public when they're at a wrestling match. But one of them, Romeo, he, he grew up in Tijuana and he would go to these wrestling matches with his dad. And they were like, he told me that this was like a date that he would go on his dad with. And um, so it had a very big significance to him. So ever since he was little, he wanted to be a luchador. But his dad said, you know what? First, you got to get a career. So he's actually an attorney in Tijuana. He has his own law practice. And he started training. Uh, he really enjoyed fitness. And he always had a love for, for Lucha Libre. And he made a promise to his dad that one day he'd be a luchador. So um, he became one. And uh, he's actually really, really fun to watch. And um, yeah, he's, he's still an attorney. So by the day he has clients and then in the afternoons he's in the gym practicing these like really elaborate tricks and then on the weekends he's you know flying off to different states and and um competing in these matches one of the other guys i interviewed he lives in spring valley and um he's now a professional luchador this is all he does he doesn't have another side job this is everything he does and he's also um you know he grew up with with somewhat of a love for Lucha Libre. He grew up around it and he was kind of getting into trouble as a young boy and sport was kind of a way for him to distract himself from from those uh, temptations. And so Lucha Libre kind of put him on the right track. (laughs) Wow. Um, Given that, I'm guessing that for many of the luchadors themselves, you know, this isn't a full-time job, but could it be or, or is it more of a passion for the people behind the masks? 
Yeah, it's definitely a, a full-time job. I mean, most of the guys that were there had kind of, you know, a side gig. Some of them are Uber drivers. Some of them are construction workers. Some of them are line cooks, you know, the, the different things that, you know, the one I spoke with was an attorney. Um, but it could definitely be a full-time profession. Uh, the, the fighter I spoke with, uh, the King Rey Misterio, he, this is all he does. During the pandemic, he did, he ended up getting into construction for a bit because a lot of events were canceled. Um, but yeah, that he lives off Lucha Libre. This is everything he, he does every day. He travels. Um, he was in Oklahoma, I think, the week after the match that I, I covered. And so it's definitely lucrative business. These luchadores get paid to attend to the matches. So, um, you know, they, they can have uh, different deals with different promotion companies, and it could be a, it could be a career for some of them. Of course, a career that you know, is dependent on them being healthy and on them not getting injured, um, on them getting enough jobs. So it could definitely be a stressful job. <laughs> so what kind of significance do these events have within the Mexican-American community? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, they kind of bring you back to to maybe a match you might have attended as a child. So many people there, it just felt like you were surrounded by like giant kids. You know, they, they were screaming and, and they were booing sometimes. And I almost felt like at some point they were going to throw things, but it's just this huge energy. And um, it's very common to have these matches in, in, in Mexico and see them as something that it's like what you do on the weekends, right? Something you do with, with your dad, maybe, or your uncle. Um, so for a lot of people, it's, it's a sense of, you know, taking them back to those memories or feeling like they're back at home in Mexico because, you know, people are uh, shaking water bottles with beans inside them, or they're drinking beers, or they're booing uh, one of the wrestlers, or being crushed by the wrestlers flying out of the ring and flying into the crowd. So it, it's a lot of energy. And I think it gives a lot of people a sense of belonging. And you write that this kind of theatrical wrestling, both here and in Mexico, I mean, think WWE, right? <laughs> Hadn't always been taken seriously. Uh, is that changing? Yeah, that is. So I spoke with a professor, actually, she had an interesting story. She, you know, is working on her thesis, and she wanted to learn a little bit more about luchadores. So she spent a lot of time um, actually training as a luchadora herself. And, you know, just interviewing a bunch of different luchadores. And at that time, it was in the 90s, in the early 90s, uh, she, she said that luchadores just felt like they, that they were a big part of Mexican culture, but they just weren't looked at that way. They weren't recognized that way. And for a long time, they, they really advocated for themselves. And it wasn't until later when, when um, you know, Mexico City de declared something special for luchadores. And, you know, as these organizations got larger, I think people started to recognize the significance of, of this sport and tradition as well. That was San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafaña speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. You can watch Lucha Libre this Saturday at 6.30 p.m. at Mujeres Brewery. That's it for the podcast today, but tomorrow and Sunday we'll have special bonus episodes of the podcast featuring the KPBS Summer Music Series. In the meantime, be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful weekend.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.